0: Hello, I'm Marianne O'Hotter. And I'm Danielle George. And welcome to This Study Shows. This is a podcast from Wiley Research, and it's all about how your research matters and has to be shared. But as we all know, it's not really as simple as putting a link up on Twitter and hoping the masses will flock to read about your new discoveries. There's a lot to learn if we want to become masters of science communication – Fortunately, this podcast is here to help. Yes. So far, we've looked at the question, how do I make people care? And
1: in this episode, we're going to be answering the question, what's the word I'm looking for?
0: Danielle, I want to tell you about um, a piece of research that a psychologist called Daniel Oppenheimer did in 2006. Mm. He wrote a paper called consequences of erudite vernacular utilised irrespective of necessity. That's brilliant. And, and they're all words, but I, I have no idea what they mean. Well, helpfully, he's got a subheading, which is problems with using long words needlessly. And basically, the research that he did was um, he, he showed that the longer words that you use, regardless of sentence structure or, or grammar, make people think that they sound clever, but to readers... They make they think that you're less intelligent and less confident. The simpler words that you use, the better you score in terms of ratings for intelligence, comprehensibility, and confidence. Huh. So don't use long words, they make you sound dumb. That's really interesting because I
1: bet if I talk to many of the scientists and engineers that I work with, they'd think the opposite. Like, yeah. oh no, it's really important that we use the very long words. Because we sound really clever.
0: Yeah, and and I suppose some people aren't necessarily aware of that being their, their kind of supposition. But you go, well, the long word is the accurate word. That's the, the proper word. And you go, the thing is, it's not a very good word if no one knows what you're going <laughs> yeah, on about. Yeah. So pick a different one. Yeah, yes. <laughs> So, I mean, there's lots of ways to communicate scientific research, which isn't publishing peer-reviewed research papers or or presenting at conferences. We've got blogs, we've got podcasts, we've got YouTube, we've got opportunities to contribute to TV documentaries. And there are also some left-field examples as well, aren't there? absolutely. Let me introduce you to our next guest. And in fact,
1: I'm going to play you one of his tracks.
2: Ever since the fate of African peoples was debated, signed, sealed and decided, their descendants have been enslaved, oppressed, scattered, vilified and derided.
1: Many and this is the guy who wrote and performed that.
2: I'm a lecturer in sociology, criminology, black studies, and I'm the founding creator of data verbalization.
1: So you might have heard of data visualisation before, yeah? Yep, yep. But Martin coined the phrase data verbalization. This is the difference.
2: Basically, data visualization shows the data, data verbalization speaks it. One of the ironies of data visualization is that when you present data visualization, you have to speak about it.
1: And here's the story of how he inadvertently invented data verbalization
2: I was invited to the American Society of Criminology conference, and it was about race and crime. And I'd written a big article on mass incarceration. But as a qualitative researcher, there is something uncomfortable about taking people's stories and putting them in an article and speaking to privileged people. I, that doesn't work for me. So I just come up with this idea. I went, you know, I sat on my computer and I took 10,000 words and did a thematic analysis, just completely deconstructed it. And it up from 10,000 words down to 2,000. I rhymed it. Like one massive rhyming thing. And I said, Yeah, I'm going to do it this way. So I went down a recording studio and I saw three very miserable, bitter hip hop producers because I'd made them turn up early in the morning. And I said, Look, I need a beat. I need a West Coast hip hop beat with a jazz uh, sample. I said, What's it for? And I said, Well, look, I've, it's for my research. So I performed it. it, took about 12 minutes, and they said, It's too long. You're mad. Go away. I said, I'm not asking for your opinion. I said, just give me a beat. Anyway, I sat down there, watched them. They came up with a beat. We recorded it. When they played it back, we looked at each other. We couldn't believe it. It's, what have we just done? So I thought, well, that's it. Thanks, lads. And said, so, no, no, no. We're going to put it into the community. So they put it a record shop. They put it everywhere. And I'm thinking, I'm too old for this. I'm 60 plus. This is, this is crazy. I'm... Um, People in the community picked up on it, it was on hip-hop shows, and, but it was my research. And then they eventually sent it to Buster Rhymes in America, and then it went to Black Lives Matter, and then 30 million people later, it was just like, what have we done? I would say that that first piece was very spiritual for me, and anybody that's heard it.
1: So then he got a book deal and published a book called Speaking Data and Telling Stories, Data Verbalization for Researchers. And the thing I found really compelling about data verbalization wasn't just audience reach, but the ethical dimension, something that Martin is really passionate about.
2: But what it satisfied, essentially, I ethically found a way to return my research back to the very same people I work with, which was which I didn't realize until I spoke to my colleagues how many of you actually present your research back to the people you research with in a way that they can relate to.
1: So in order to... to... To be a data verbalizer, if that is such a word, do you need to be good at singing or good at no, music?
2: No, no. The beauty about data verbalization, I can go to a hip hop artist who's proficient in hip hop and give them a research report and show them about thematic analysis and they can do it themselves. This is about collaboration. This is about working collectively. It's not about experts. Mm. It's who's best to do the job.
1: How did the academics in the community? How did they receive all Well, work? I,
2: there was a range of responses. Um, the younger academics loved it because they said, Martin, you brought popular culture with academic ideas. You brought a synthesis of the two. The purists, like any purist, hated it. And because
1: to, why, why do you think that
2: was? Um, I mean, I obviously can't speak for them. I, I suppose what it is... You've been telling people for years how sophisticated you are, how complicated things are, and I just made sense of it, and everybody loved it. I think a lot of academics don't like things being simple because it demystifies the process that they hold to be sacred.
1: Mm. Listening to you now, I'm utterly convinced that what you do is, is amazing, and it has so much uh, societal impact, social impact, and what I'm worried about is I, I go back to my office tomorrow into my ivory tower and I'm driven by the metrics such as the the Research Excellence Framework, the REF, which is the the metrics that I use in British universities, um, but there are the the equivalents in other countries too. And I have all of these pressures on me as an academic and your thing becomes something that would be lovely to do, but I just can't do it. How do you square that circle?
2: There's a range of things really. I think you've raised... It's not, a compli- it's not a conflict for me first. I think that academia has some challenges to face because when we look at impact, I can test what impact actually means. Impact tends to mean a few important, relevant uh, journals, um, opinions that form the basis of contractual obligations in terms of research which I'm not going to argue with that. And I think that historically, whether it's The Lancet, theoretical criminology, they're really important. But they have no validity within areas of social science. You can have 100 four-star journals, you haven't brought knife crime down, um, a cure for drugs, violence against women, murdering the under fives. So it's about context and orientation. So data verbalization doesn't purport to be all things to all people.
1: So what, as as researchers, as science communicators, what could we be doing right now to, to harness the power
2: of data well, verbalization? Well, the, the first thing is, is, first ask who's your audience? I used to think, you know, when I do conferences, you know, when you're in your 40s, you hear the applause and the stand innovation, if you get one, and the PowerPoint, and... 15 people stay behind and say, can I have your card and do you want to do some joint research? I think that's not my audience. We have to recognise that the audience is not just your peers. And I think for a lot of academics, they feel, well, I've done enough, the research took long enough, or the grant run out, so I don't really have enough time to disseminate it, I'm on to the next project. Um, Our commitment to social change, to social justice... To cultural shifts, has to be a commitment that transcends the shelf life of the project. Sounds simply sounds sounds.
0: sounds. Oh, I love that—the yeah. the, the emphasis on on social justice and on the the ethics of being a researcher and that sort of reflexivity of, of going back to the the people who made the research possible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's such a huge thing in anthropology and, and has been for a long time. But how would you say something like that, that idea of going back to the people that you, you were originally researching with, how would that impact on something like your research where you don't have people as your subjects? Yeah, so
1: I asked Martin this. I was I was completely blown away with, with data verbalization, something that I'd not really thought about in the way that Martin does. And I was like, wow, that's like, could you do that? Would it appeal to people if you start talking about sort of engineering aspects um, in hip hop or, you know, other other forms of music? But I said to Martin, I, you know, I think it's brilliant what you do. Um, but, you know, I, I've just published... Say my recent paper that one of my PhD students has just published, that's about an amplifier at a certain frequency range that's going on a telescope in Chile. How, how, what could you do that? I guess you couldn't do anything. I was like, send it to me. (laughs) <laughs> so so we are collaborating now and it's it's really good fun. So so I've sent him it. He wants to look at it and and he is all for this. So the great thing is I saw this barrier of oh well it must just be about, you know, if you want social justice or if it's about people. But Martin seems to think no there's there's no barrier to that. If you do things about space, then yeah, I can I can do something with it. So watch this space. I don't know what it's going to be like. That's very cool. Yeah, I see it as, as another tool in, mm. in my toolbox of science communication. It wouldn't be the only tool, um, but I think it will really help strengthen my toolbox in science communication.
3: Hashtag SciComm Sunday. Hashtag Psycom. Hashtag Science. Hashtag Education. Hashtag Women in STEM. That's
0: a lot of hashtags. You're playing me, Marianne. It is. I'm sorry. But it is a handy way of signalling that the next bit is about a blogger. Right? Well, a bit lazy, but all right.
3: Hashtag share what you love. Hashtag announcement. Hashtag PSA.
0: The blogger in question is Dr Sophie Arthur. Now, Sophie has a day job.
3: So I currently work at the Medical Research Council, London Institute of Medical Sciences, um, as a science communication officer. But... I also write a award-winning science and education blog called Safe Talk Science, and share a lot of science and science communication tips across um, Instagram, Twitter, and also on my blog.
0: And it's that blog, Safe Talk Science, that I wanted to hear about. It won two awards at last year's UK Blog Awards: uh, best individual education winner and individual content creator of the year, which is a pretty big deal mm. for one woman sitting at her laptop blogging about what it's like to do a PhD in stem cell biology <laughs> Um But the thing that Soph, I think, really captures is the idea that you can write in different registers and through doing that, you reach very different audiences. And I got the sense from her that it's really important for her to break down some of the misconceptions about what it is to be a scientist. That you can be young, you can be a girl, you can wear lipstick, you can write about high-heeled shoes, as well as be awesome at science. If you could summarise... What Soft Talk Science is about and who you're trying to reach, what would it be?
3: In a nutshell, it's probably about breaking the stereotype of what a scientist looks like and what a science career is. It's just about trying to break down the barriers and realise that being a scientist is really just about being curious and asking good questions.
0: Let's talk about language, Soph. You write really accessibly for people who perhaps might not be interested in reading a science blog at all. You'll write about shoes and lipstick (laughs) and what you've been getting up to on the weekend, as well as, you know, quite complicated stuff about stem cell research or robotics. Mm -hmm. How do you hit that, that kind of, that perfect pitch?
3: When I read, I always read it as if I'm having a conversation. So, when I write, I kind of do the same thing. So I want that to come across when I do my blog posts. So I hope that when people read it, they feel that I'm almost chatting to them and just I'm um, sat across from the table talking to them. That's the vibe I want to get across. So
0: it's quite an organic conversational style. There's no sense at any point that either I'm in not safe hands, you clearly know what you're talking about, but you're also incredibly friendly and not trying to ram your cleverness down my throat.
3: I want to feel like I'm opening up a conversation with people so that they feel comfortable enough to ask me questions and then I can either do research for them to help them get answers or point them in direction of certain sources or resources that they can do that for themselves because... I always feel that science and science communication, it's not like a one-way or two-way street. It's not me giving you information and then seeing what on earth happens with it. It's about me trying to encourage people to ask questions and just want to be curious about things because that's ultimately what a scientist is.
0: So on your blog, you say that science is not finished until it's communicated. Yeah. Tell me more about that as a sort of philosophy.
3: (laughs) If you are a researcher based in the lab, you might do your experiments, you publish your paper, and then you might use that paper to then try and get your grant applications. And it's this whole cyclical process. When you're trying to get your grants, being able to communicate your findings and your intentions better is gonna help the success of that. Even if you're using a science communications department to help you share your latest findings in the press, you have to be able to communicate effectively with them so they can do your research justice.
0: What would be your top tips for people who were thinking about setting up a science blog?
3: Have a load of content ready before you publish and don't think that you have to have the exact final format when you begin. My blog now is completely different how it was a year ago, let alone when I started three years ago. So it's all about evolving, finding the right tone of voice that you want, finding the right audience that you want to find and just Just yeah, just evolving over time, once you've started, it's definitely about having a regular posting schedule. I found that's helped me a lot. Once a month or twice a week or daily, just find a schedule that suits you best and your routine best and stick to that for however long you can.
0: Okay, so don't do it as an ad hoc here and there thing.
3: No, it definitely doesn't work that way because you either put pressure on yourself to keep doing it and then it affects your daily work life or you don't see the results you're perhaps expecting straight away and then it puts you off that way so I think keeping to a schedule realizing that things take time to take off um, and don't expect millions and millions of views from your first blog post. (laughs)
1: Any more than you should expect millions and millions of listens from your
0: first podcast series, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wise words and top tips from Sophie Arthur there on how Soph talks science and how you can talk science too. With or without hashtags. So, in
1: the room, we are joined by a man. This man came up with a very good game where you write about your work only using the 10 hundred most common words. And the reason I am talking like this is because I'm trying to do it now. Good work. Thanks. But it's actually really hard to do, especially because the name of the man isn't one of the most used words. (laughs) So can we pause the game, please? (laughs) Can I introduce Theo Sanderson? Hello, Theo. Hello. So tell us about yourself, Theo.
4: Uh, I am a scientist, I'm a geneticist, and I like to make strange things on the internet.
0: So you're a geneticist, but what you've come up with is a, a kind of an interface online that anyone can access for free, where you can translate any kind of complex idea into very simple words. This is called the Goer 5 Why has it got such a weird name?
4: Right. So Upgoa 5 is a webcomic on XKCD, this sort of famous geeky webcomic. And it's called Upgoa 5 because it refers to the Saturn V rocket that brought people to the moon and so on. Um, But Randall Munro, the the creator of this comic, has attempted to draw you a diagram in this comic of the rocket, but using only these thousand most common words in the English language. And so you get these bizarre um, labels like uh, this is the cold air for burning, uh, or this is the part that stays on the other world. It's still there, um, and and so, uh, it, but it actually does a remarkably good job of explaining how this rocket works using this very limited vocabulary. And so, uh, when when this comic came out, my friend sent me a link to it and said, you know, can you try to explain your PhD in this format? And I think she was basically joking, but I actually thought it was interesting to try to have a go. And so I had to build this this thing that would tell me when I'd got it wrong and when I'd used some words that weren't in this list. And that became what's called the Upgoer 5 text editor.
1: So Upgoer 5 is Saturn 5. That's right. Brilliant. <laughs> Why did you decide to do it? Um, I
4: think it's, it, it creates an interesting challenge because we're so used to scientists to using all this jargon and to really be forced to go to the other end of the spectrum it, it 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 stretches the mind and it may not be the ideal way to communicate your science but i think it's probably closer to the ideal than the way that we typically do it with all the jargon by by experiencing this process i felt that i was able to communicate my science a bit better
0: okay so can you can you explain to us your phd in in the thousand most common words
4: I, I can try. So so in some parts of the world, there are these small flying things that uh, that bite people and drink their blood. And even worse, sometimes when these small flying things bite people, they're carrying a bad thing that can make people very sick. And the reason people get sick is that while the flying thing is drinking their blood, these even tinier bad things can get into the person's body from its mouth. And I study those tiny bad things, and I study how they make people sick. So um, you have some letters inside your cells, which you got from your mother and your father, and these tiny bad things have letters inside them too. And I study the letters that make up the tiny bad things, and I try to understand how they work. And if we understand how the tiny bad things work, we hope we can find ways to stop them working, and if we can stop them working, we can make people less
0: sick. That is brilliant. I feel like a round of applause. <laughs> Can I check that I did understand that you study malaria? That's right. Like the genetic <laughs> basis of malaria? No, well done. Yes, <gasps> That is absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Mosquitoes, isn't yeah. right? So sometimes what you'd love to say is mosquito... But obviously, that's not one of the most thousand common words. So, I mean, is this kind of a, a useful thought experiment and a bit of humour, or is there some kind of validity in it? Do we end up sort of uh, muddying the meaning because we're trying to get round using the most obvious word?
4: I mean, clearly, it's not the future of communication. I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, but I think that by proving to yourself. It's actually, in some sense, with a bit of time, it's remarkable how far you can get with these explanations. Um, if, if you can express what you do in, in, the, wor- in, in the set of a thousand words, then, uh, then you really know that you can communicate it to somebody who knows very, very little because it means that they don't need to have actually heard about mosquitoes. And obviously most people have heard about mosquitoes, but as soon as you get a bit further, you get to things that people haven't heard of. And knowing that you can explain those things from first principles is quite helpful and also it can create this sort of quite profound uh these quite profound descriptions of of what you do I, in my opinion
1: and what's been the response to this challenge
4: i mean it, it's been taken up pretty well so um so this was a few years ago and it's now had more than a million hits, um, and and there've there been uh, these science conferences that have uh, started running sessions where people are forced to only use this very limited vocabulary <laughs> for a conference session, um, and and there, there are clips of them on YouTube. They look pretty funny and, and uh, good fun.
0: That's brilliant. <laughs> I'm I'm struck by um, the original Upgoer Five um, illustration at the bottom, where the um, the kind of what are these, rocket launchers? The, yeah, the kind where, where
4: the gas comes out. The big out. <laughs>
0: burny bits at the bottom of a spaceship. Fire comes out here. <laughs> it says lots of fire comes out here, yeah. Um, and then it says, this end should point toward the ground if you want to go to space. If it starts pointing towards space, you are having a bad problem and you will not go to space today.
1: <laughs> so space is one of the words, is it?
0: I think it is. Yes. Oh, I I think think so. I might. I might... This is the I hope. Should we yeah. try you?
1: Well, maybe. Okay, let me pull up. Work, so, I don't know. so,
0: this um, UpGoer5 text editor, you go to splasho.com forward slash UpGoer5, the numeral five forward slash. Okay, Danielle, tell me what you do. Let's try and do this together. Okay. Um, so, I design
1: amplifiers for radio telescopes. Okay. And what do the amplifiers do? They're amplifying the weak astronomical signal. So that when when you collect all of the data, that signal is
0: stronger. And why are we doing that? For space exploration. To so understand we can... the universe. Ooh. Okay. So we we want to explore space and we need your instruments in order to do that. Yes.
4: And okay. you make plans for the things that make the make something bigger, I guess. Is, is that right?
0: Um, I wonder if we might have to lose the concept of amplifying very weak astronomical signals. <laughs> you know, no. for the three-year-olds.
4: <laughs> but there's small things in space, and you make them bigger with your thing.
0: Yes,
1: yes, Theo. Thing that that's got to be, be the most about common word. So way. many things.
0: <laughs> okay, so you make plans to make small things bigger in space. Small
1: things in space ah. bigger.
0: Um, and we want to do that so we can understand our planet. We can understand the universe. Can we have universe?
1: No.
4: <laughs> it's a big world. There's a big space world.
0: Big space
1: world. Yeah. Is that the universe? I mean, awesome.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I think I've got it. I think I've got it. Go on. Then. This is exciting, but Theo. This is genuinely exciting. I, I mean, genuinely, Danielle. I, I love and respect you, but I don't really understand your research. But this is really now you do fun, and now I sort of do now that you've you know got it down to the level of a, a nursery school kid. Um, okay, I think. Okay, I've got one forbidden word still, which is tools, because things is a silly word. And I refuse to use it. Um, okay, so this is what you could say. Mm. We need to understand space better and our place in the big space world around us. My job is to make new tools so we can see what's up there. They make small waves from space bigger so we can see and hear them. It's very exciting and I love it. <sighs> Ka-ching! Is that going to go up on your um, website now? It totally is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's brilliant. Theo, I absolutely love this as a, as a kind of a thought exercise and an exercise in in sort of communication clarity. It properly makes you unpack what it is that you say and genuinely think about what's important about what you're trying to communicate.
4: No, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's that's really what I appreciate about about the exercise of doing it. People make the point uh, that that this is not an optimal method of communication. And, and obviously they're right. Um, but I think you have to to treat it as an exercise and, and a bit of fun mm. that that does maybe help you when you're really trying to communicate. It's built some new skill that maybe you can draw upon.
0: Because it also instills a confidence in the audience as well. It's not just that you've had to think quite critically about what it is that you're trying to communicate to me. I'm, as an audience member, coming from a place where you go, okay, you've got my back. I get that you are trying to help me understand and take me on a journey Mm. through your complicated research. Let's go together.
4: And there's nothing worse as an audience member than sitting there and feeling really stupid because someone is explaining something in a way that you just can't understand. So hopefully it, it brings the audience to, to a better feeling as well.
0: Uh, so Theo, if people want to try this Upgoer 5 text editor, where do they go?
4: So they go to splasho.com, S-P-L-A-S-H-O.com slash Upgoer 5 and that's 5 the digit not 5 the the word so sorry for the long explanation <laughs>
1: Okay, and before we go, let's just hear what's been added to the Wiley Research Fictionary this episode. As a reminder, we're asking our podcast guests, listeners and followers on social media to tell us their made-up words and phrases that particularly apply to someone who works in science. So this is
3: Sophie's addition to the Fictionary. So the word I'd like to contribute is perpetitive strain injury, which I use to describe that ache you get in your thumb after you've been perpeting in the lab all day over and over and over again.
1: And Theo is still here. Do you have a word for us, Theo?
4: Uh, Yes, I would like to offer your fictionary the word smithereps.
0: Smithereps. Ooh, what's that?
4: So, so if you work in a biology lab, you have these Eppendorf tubes and you put them in a centrifuge, but from time to time the lid comes flying off as the centrifuge is spinning at however many thousand RPM and, and then it gets crushed into a sort of fine dust. And so, so Smithereps are the fine shards of destroyed Eppendorf tubes found beneath the centrifuge rotor.
1: <laughs> Smithereps, I love it. What I love is that there are going to be some people listening that go, yes, yeah. I know that. That's what I've got now, smithereps. Smithereps. There
0: you go. Well, we wish you few smithereps in your research going forwards. Thank
1: you very much. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to This Study Shows. If you'd like
0: to get in touch, then you can tweet us at wileyinresearch or email us at shows at wiley.com. We'd love to hear from you. This Study Shows was presented by me, Marianne O'Hotter. And me, Danielle George. It's a Wise Buddha production for Wiley Research. The producer was Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Wise Buddha was Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research was Samantha Green.